Hi everyone, welcome to the Quipster Film Review Podcast. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website Quipster.net. I invite you to check out nearly 4,000 written reviews there, stemming all the way back to when I first started doing them back in 1996. You can go to Quipster.net, read them all today, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Today I'm going to be looking at a film that's doing really well at the box office. It's a horror film, and this being October, at the time of this recording, it's a time when many people want to watch scary movies, and certainly it fits the bill there. It's a horror movie. It does have some dramatic elements to it. It's R-rated because of violence, bloody images, and its language. It runs two hours and 15 minutes. The cast includes, I won't go through all the cast, but Jaden Lieberher and Bill Skarsgård primarily, Sophia Lillis, Jeremy Ray Taylor, basically a lot of names you may not have heard before. It's a very young cast. And this film is doing, like I said, extremely well despite a lack of star power. It really is the property that people are attracted to. Andy Muschietti is the director. Screenplay is credited to Chase Palmer, Gary Dauberman, and Kerry Fukunaga. Interestingly enough, Gary Fukunaga was originally attached to be the director of It and fortunately had some creative differences with the studio as far as the direction that he wanted to go. And in comes Andy Muschietti. Now, the works of Stephen King continue to be a strong influence on storytellers of today, not only in book form, but also on TV. The popular Netflix show Stranger Things does carry a lot of King's influence, and and it's kind of an interesting twist because that show also influenced Hollywood Studios to push for more popular Stephen King projects to get adapted to the silver screen. We had The Dark Tower come out just this summer. It didn't do so well, but... It certainly is doing a lot more box office than that one. And as with the show Stranger Things, it is set in the 1980s. It's mostly in 1989 here. It pushes it over 30 years from the setting of Stephen King's 1986 book, which was set in the 1950s. And it was adapted before in a television miniseries that was made around the time of this new film, at least when it's set, 1990. So just a year after when this film was set. That miniseries featured one of Tim Curry's most iconic performances, playing Pennywise. And given millions of Stephen King fans that there are already, as well as those who consider themselves fans of that TV production, this 2017 version certainly has a high bar to clear. It has to really provide much more than just jump scares and a killer clown to satisfy today's audiences. And I would say that for the most part, it does. The action in it takes place in a fictional small town of Derry, Maine. we mostly follow a group of about seven adolescents who are on their break during the summer, so no school. They ride around on their bikes and get into adventures. The de facto leader of the group is named Bill, played by Jaden Lieberher, and Bill and his family have recently been plagued by thoughts that Bill's younger brother, Georgie, disappeared without a trace, though at the time that we learn that, we in the audience know that Georgie is the latest victim of this sewer-dwelling, fear-feeding demon who mostly presents himself to his victims in the form of a clown named Pennywise. Now, Georgie's not the only child to go missing of late, and the group soon learns that Derry does have a special history of children who disappear without a trace about once every generation, and that causes the Losers Club, as they're known, to have to confront their innermost nightmarish fears, lest they become the latest victim of the sinister Pennywise. Now, playing Pennywise here and filling the enormously floppy clown shoes that were left behind by Tim Curry is Bill Skarsgård. Not really a well-known name, except for his last name, I guess. If you 
follow. He's the son of Stellan Skarsgård and the brother of Alexander. However, it does not present the clown as the source of the fear throughout the film, even though he's very prominent in all the advertisements, and as he should be. But the kids already have their own major issues to contend with that are causing fear from being persistently bullied. In fact, the scenes in which the kids get bullied, to me, were the most unnerving of this film. One of the kids is being sexually abused. One of them deals with a personal trauma that he feels guilty for causing. Uh, Pennywise targets them because they are the most afraid. And that seems to be a constant in their lives, especially at this time. So therein lies the fear. And avoiding one-note staleness, I think that Bill Skarsgård frequently changes his tempo for his portrayal of the psycho clown. He shifts his tone of his voice as well as delivery. And it really depends on the way that he wants to lure the children as individuals into a vulnerable position. I think that that works pretty well for this story of a clown that shifts his appearance as well to stoke maximum fear. It does feel like another iteration of Freddy Krueger in the Nightmare on Elm Street series, but I think that the makers of this film do know that because there's a nod to the Nightmare on Elm Street series. A local theater marquee is displaying Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, which came out that year, as kind of an homage to that kind of filmmaking. I think that a major asset that it benefits from is a very likable and memorable group of child characters within it. And those characters are breathed to life through quality performances by the young actors all around. And while the film never quite encroaches into territory that I personally found terrifying, your mileage certainly is going to vary on that, I do think that the movie still finds some enjoyment in seeing these kids interacting with one another throughout their big adventure, even when Pennywise remains off the screen. And that's surprisingly often for a modern horror movie, which... Today, you would see the malevolence happen like every three minutes or something. So it's kind of interesting that this film will go through long spells where Pennywise is not quite there, although he is there a significant amount of time. And then while Pennywise, I don't have a fear of clowns, he doesn't really creep me out as much as I might have gathered given the fact that a lot of people say that they're terrified of clowns and they're terrified of Pennywise in particular. I do still think that there are aspects of the film that border on horrific, you know, at the hands of psychotic bully Henry Bowers. He attempts to disfigure or even kill for his own pleasure during certain moments. Loser girl Beverly's home life with his father, who's likely been sexually abusing her for many years, that really does kind of make your hair stand on end. In the world of It, the children are and have always been the prey, and that leads Pennywise to target them. They're the lowest hanging fruit for him to feed off. Now, director here, Andy Muschietti, he's working from an adaptation scripted by Chase Palmer, Kerry Fukunaga, and Gary Dauberman. They set the lengths to which the children are vulnerable pretty early. We have the horrific killing of the younger brother in a particularly nasty fashion at the hands of Pennywise. And then from then on, especially given the film's well-earned R rating, we know that anything can happen, at least we suspect that they can, and that leads to additional suspense when we see the children in danger. The film does borrow heavily from 1980s classics, not only the original book, of course, but also Stand By Me, which was another Stephen King adaptation that was made in the 1980s. A lot of people are going to be reminded of the kid-friendly early works of Steven Spielberg, I think E.T., because of the bike riding and, and such. And Steven Spielberg's production house, Amblin Entertainment, also made The Goonies back in the mid-80s. A lot of 1980s atmosphere is in this, but as derivative as it may be in certain respects, we still are interested in where things go because... 
The kids aren't afforded the same notion of protection and making it alive to the end as those Spielberg films. There's a daunting aspect of it, and that is really the two hours and 15 minutes in runtime. I think if anybody's looking at that, they may wonder, you know, does a horror movie like this need to be made in such a lengthy fashion? But I will remind you, for those people who don't remember, the original book by Stephen King ran up to 1,200 pages. So it was a very lengthy book. Also, there was that miniseries that was made before because you couldn't really fit all of that story into this. I would say that the way that it's presented here, the length is not felt as much as you would think. Nevertheless, the film does spend a lot of time exploring some of the characters in their own storylines. I would say not all of them are really that compelling. We have like Eddie, whose mother, who's played by this actress who's stuffed into this really unconvincing fat suit. It's really one of the worst I've seen. Anyway, the mother makes Eddie believe that he's got this disease and he's having to take medication and really kind of stay home. And then there's Mike, who has these recurring visions of losing his parents in a fire. I guess you get some screen time to these other kids, but it's it's really not that interesting. But it's not all doom and gloom. I'd say that there are a lot of choice moments of comedy. There's banter among the children. It results in some good humor throughout, especially in references to such things as New Kids on the Block and other cultural touchstones of the era in which this film is set. People in the audience at my screening groaned when they saw the words Part 1 under the film's title at the beginning of the end credits. I guess they felt like they were only getting part of the story, so they felt it was short shrift. Again, it's kind of a bold move given the fact that at the time that they were making this film, they didn't know if there was going to be a continuation because it may not have done well at the box office. And the film does set up something that also occurs in King's book. We meet up with certain characters every 27 years for another go-round confronting their fears. I suppose that's what we're going to see in the sequel. It feels inevitable, especially given this film's box office, but putting the words part one, I feel, is kind of unnecessary because I do think that it works as a standalone film, even if it only adapts part of the book. Perhaps it's only placed there for fans of the original thousand-plus pages of novel to know that they weren't just adapting just part of the story and intending to be done with it. Now, we fully expect sequels to popular films these days. No need to put a part one on things nowadays. By the end, you do begin to realize that Pennywise is the manifestation that occurs in a town that has undergone a cycle of fear. Parents are manipulating their children in the way that we suspect that they were also manipulated and used in their own town. And Pennywise is merely there because, hey, so much fear and resentment is just going to be a smorgasbord for him, really. It is. The film mostly keeps its pleasures and terrors on the surface level, but underneath the somewhat nonsensical supernatural storyline, I think there's still enough to say about how important it is for kids to be strong enough to overcome their fears instead of succumbing to them to the point where they too are passing off their real-life nightmares to others to form a long and melancholy chain of abuse. So there's a message there in addition to the frights. Three stars out of four is what I'm giving it. Three stars out of four means that I do think that it's good enough for people who are fans of Stephen King, fans of horror movies in general. I would say that if you're not really a horror movie kind of person and you only really see them if they're really significant, despite the box office performance and all the hype and what have you, I don't think there's anything really worth going out of your way for here unless you're just a fan of the genre and are curious. So now I liked it and I do think that it would be intriguing enough to see where the story goes from here. I suppose I could read the book. 
but I don't really have the time. And as you can see from the output of late on my podcast, I barely have time to even catch the movies I want to see. And along those lines, I will say I have been thinking about a format change for the show. I was thinking about perhaps doing films of the 1980s as a specialty rather than continuing to try to go to see movies in the theater that are either not as particularly interested in or I just don't have the time for it. I did move to a town that does not have a movie theater. I do have to travel 15 miles each way to go see every movie. So perhaps watching movies at home may be more in my league. If you have any thoughts about whether you would like me to try to continue to do new movies or if you want me to start doing more retro movies, whether it's films of the 70s, films of the 80s, or what have you, you can let me know. You can go to my website, quipster.net. You can find my contact information and send me an email. You can also find my Twitter feed and Facebook page on my site. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R dot net.